Uh, a few years back, in early 2000, a article was written that was published pretty widely and distributed all over the place in various news outlets. I think I came across this in USA Today. So the title of the article is Eight Compelling Reasons Why Christ is Coming Very Soon. Emphasis being placed on the very. Eight compelling reasons why Christ is coming very soon. The article lays out all kinds of arguments from both scripture and then in recent modern history as to why this is so. Several of the reasons given are from our text, Matthew chapter 24, and especially verses 4 to 8. Here's a few little snippets from that article. Like birth pangs that intensified, Jesus said that the days just before his coming would see increased famines, violence, and ethnic wars. It is a clear picture of our planet. One of six people on earth right now suffer from hunger. Violence is epidemic, and a study of wars since 500 BC shows a recent dramatic increase of more than 82 world conflicts have happened since 1990. All but three of them have been civil or ethnic wars. Furthermore, a recent study shows a dramatic increase in worldwide earthquakes. Just since the decade of Israel's birth, which, by the way, the article mentions is another one of the eight compelling reasons why Christ is coming very soon. Namely, Israel was birthed as a formal nation in the 1940s. Since then, though, the increase of these birth pains are evidenced by more and more earthquakes. There were 51 earthquakes above the Richter scale of 6.0 in the 1940s. Then in the 1950s, 475. Then in the 1980s, 1,185. In the 1990s, the current rate projects that there will be, in the years 2005, following over 1,540. And lastly, counterfeit spirituality is everywhere. Cults and false Christs are around every corner. Just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, verse 4, we live in a day where there are psychics on every street corner, spiritism, Satan worship, witchcraft, nature worship, and the New Age movement. So there's just a little snippet, give you a feel for a very popular, well-distributed article that I found in the USA Today that says reasons why Christ is coming very soon and the reasons they are giving come from Matthew 24, at least several of them. However, last week I introduced Matthew 24 with a big idea saying Matthew 24 is first and foremost about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD and not the end of the world. Meaning, I strongly disagree with that article. So this week and the weeks to come, it is my goal to defend and support the thesis that I introduced last week. Now I strongly urge you that if you've not listened to last week's message, that you go back and you listen to it on our website, because I can't repeat everything I said there, but I do want to say these things are things that we can agree to disagree upon 
And so listen to last week's message on that for further encouragement to not make this a dividing issue amongst Christians. However, we do need to land somewhere. Is Matthew 24 telling us that Jesus is coming very soon and it's going to be the end of the world? Or is it not? Let's read the text again. Starting in verse 3 all the way to verse 8. We'll take this paragraph for today. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Here's your one sentence summary. Hopefully this will help summarize this passage that we just read. And we'll unpack it for a few minutes here this morning. Jesus is telling us Jewish nationalists, raging nations, and natural disasters are not signs of the destruction of the temple. Jewish nationalists, raging nations, and natural disasters should not be signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. Those things are just going to be happening like every other day. They are not, he says emphatically, not signs of the end. So let's go back to verse 3 and unpack why I'm saying this summary sentence for Jesus' words here. Starting in verse 3, we have the all-important question from the disciples. The disciples come to Jesus privately. They're on a mountain. Uh, the Mount of Olives, not quite a mountain, but uh, the other side of the valley, looking over at the temple and Jerusalem. They have just left the temple. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. And Jesus just said that the temple will be flattened. And so the disciples ask in verse 3, tell us when will these things be? And the these things is clearly what was in verse 2. Look at verse 2, that not one stone will be left upon another. They will all be thrown down. He says it twice to make it an emphatic statement here. The temple is going to be destroyed. And as we saw last week, this temple complex is huge. It is not some sort of small building. If you look across the street behind you and say, oh, is he saying like, you know, the First United Methodist Church building is all going to come crumbling down. That's not big enough. That's not a symbol at the center of our town and city and a political religious statement being made by destroying a building like that. Now, I'm I'm not suggesting the building across the street means nothing. I'm just trying to help you understand. This is not just like a church building or a temple around the corner that you're used to seeing. We're talking about the Washington Monument, the Capitol Building, the Supreme Court, 
and the White House all being destroyed on the same day. Would that have some sort of like political overtones if something like that happened? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says the, the temple here is going to be overthrown and not one stone left on another. So the disciples are asking, okay, so when is this going to happen? And then you see that they ask a second question, and what are the sign, the sign of your coming and the end of the age, which is very much attached to the first part of, okay, when is this temple flattening thing happening? Because in our minds, we're expecting that when the temple goes down and you're the king and you're ruling, that this is because it's the end of the age and the king has come. We must remember, we have said this many times, but it's worth repeating, especially in this context, in the gospel according to Matthew, that the expectation of the disciples is that the Messiah of the Jewish people, the King of the Jews, will be a military leader who will overthrow the corrupt leaders in the temple system and the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus just says, the temple's about to be destroyed, and remember all the political religious connotations that I just mentioned, the disciples are like, okay, now we're talking. This is what we've been waiting for. When's that going to take place? Because honestly, that's what we signed up for. We're waiting and longing for the Messiah to come and reign and rule and sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And we didn't know this temple was going to be thrown down. But yeah, that seems like war and military might and, and battles are, are, are coming when you're talking a temple like that being demolished. So they're wondering, when's that going to happen? And when are you going to take up your throne and rule and, and lead? Jesus begins to answer in our text by saying, it will not be when you see Jewish nationalists, raging nations, and natural disasters. These will not be signs of the destruction of the temple. That's Jesus's first answer in our text, verses 4 to 8. In other words, the end or the end of the age that you keep seeing in Matthew 24. Every time you see that, do you see it in verse 3? When will the end of the age come? Look at, again down in our verse where Jesus says in verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end, the Greek word there is telos. The end is not yet. It does not mean the end of the world. It means the end or the completion or the fullness. It's a very broad word. There is nothing in Jewish literature around the time of Jesus that the disciples themselves or anyone in this context are thinking about the second coming of Jesus or thinking about the end of the world. In fact, the disciples, as we can tell, they don't even have the second coming on their radar. They're still thinking about his first coming. They're wondering, when is Christ going to be on his throne as the king of the Jews? So if we don't understand that the end of the age and the question in verse 3 has nothing to do with the second coming of Jesus in the mind of the disciples, who's asking the question? Not you. This is not us asking the question. The disciples are asking the question. The disciples who we know are confused about what Jesus' kingdom is going to look like. Read the whole Gospel of Matthew. 
for evidence of confused disciples who don't understand Jesus is not a military hero conquering with a sword. Fast forward in the story when Peter is still confused even after this speech and pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear right before Jesus gets arrested. They don't get it. So they're asking a question not knowing what they're asking in terms of kingdom and end of age and Christ's coming. And so in summary, I would make sure we understand that if we're going to understand the rest of chapter 24, you have to get verse 3. You won't understand the answer that Jesus provides if you don't get the question that he is being asked. And there is no evidence that Jews in Jesus' time, including these disciples, were thinking about the end of the space-time universe or the second coming that was read about in the USA Today article referenced earlier. You might think then, okay, so then what did they believe was going to happen? What were they longing for? They believed that the end of the age is a reference to the end of the present world order. The world order in which Romans held power and Jewish leaders in the temple were corrupt. Simply put, they were looking for the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and dreams as they were expressed in the Old Testament scriptures. They were waiting for the climax of the story of the whole Bible to finally come to a climactic fruition and fulfillment. So therefore, the telos, the goal of the age that they were longing for was not the destruction of the physical material world or the earth, but the end of the present reign and rule of an evil empire, which pretty much was the known world. It was like the end of the world if the Roman Empire falls apart. That, that that's metaphorically makes sense in the same way that if the Twin Towers fall down on 9-11 and all of Washington, D.C. got destroyed and, and things like that. We were like, whoa, the world is falling apart. It's the end of the world. That kind of language actually fits those contexts when big events like that are happening. So the age to come would put an end to the Israel's time of exile and mourning and longing for a king and a leader. It would bring freedom and vindication. And so therefore, Matthew 24, verse 3, in its most natural sense, in the first century Jewish context, is not a question about the end of this world, but it is a question about the enthronement of Christ as king and the end of the world in terms of the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders. So when will that come, they're asking. When will the evil age, symbolized by the present Jerusalem regime, when will that be over? And Jesus begins to answer that question in this long, lengthy chapter. And we've read just a small section of it. And verses 4 to 8 say, three things are going to happen in the next 40 years. And they're going to continue to happen. And these will not be signs. So what you're going to notice is that starting in verse 4, as Jesus answers, he's going to continue to give time markers because he's answering that first question, the when question. When are these things going to happen? Jesus, what you're talking about, when's that going to take place? And so he's going to start using time language. And here he says, they're going to be things that you might think is going to be, oh, war, rumors of wars, natural disasters. Okay, so it's coming soon. That's what's going to bring the temple down. He's like, no, no, that's not it. That's not the event. A little bit later when he gets to the abomination and desolation, he's going to say that's going to be the sign, but these things, these are not the sign. That's what he's saying so far. And I have summarized it as Jewish nationalists 
raging nations and natural disasters. The reason I summarize it that way is look at verse 4. Jesus says, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name. And what's the name that they take up? They say, I am the Christ. Christ is not the last name for Jesus. It's a title. It's like president or high priest or Supreme Court justice. It's a title. It's a position. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the long-awaited Messiah. And so he's saying that other people are going to be going around and saying, I'm that person. And when they're going around and saying that they are that person, what is the Jewish expectation of what that person is going to be like? A Jewish nationalist, a military ruling, conquering hero that's going to overthrow the Roman government, take over the current regime of the temple, and establish a new way of being Israel. And Jesus said, there are going to be a bunch of people that are doing that, and you should not follow their leading. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by those people. Fanatics, religious fanatics, they will become popular. So if we were to look in history, since all of this has already happened, did Jesus' words come true? Were there many Jewish nationalists that came up and said, I am the Messiah or things quite like that? And lead many astray and have them think, this is the way. Answer is yes. One one resource I was reading listed 14 different leaders from the time that Jesus said these words to the time of the destruction of the temple. 14. Some of them had followers, followings of over 30,000 people. I mean, we're talking about many were led astray by people claiming that they were following the Jewish Messiah. Justice, son of Ezekias, Simon of Perea, Anthrongus, Judas, Judas of Galilee, Thutis, the Egyptian false prophet, the imposter. How about that in history? You're known as nothing other than the imposter. All kinds of religious enthusiasts, enthusiasts led um, the, the imposter into the wilderness as they claimed and said things similar to what you'd hear from John the Baptist or Jesus. One of the things you need to realize is that in the first century, the things that Jesus says and does in some ways is not unique. He's not the only person going around saying he is the Christ. So that's why it always begs the question, so was he? And of course, we're standing here, sitting here 2,000 years later saying, yeah, he was. He is the true fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the climax of the Israel story. And he brought an end to that story in a way that no one was expecting. Similarly, there were all kinds of wars and rumors of wars between Christians and Jews in the Roman Empire. So the nations were raging, the peoples were plotting in vain. And so we can see whether there were earthquakes, just just as much natural disasters, all kinds of issues related to our text are recorded in human history, in Jewish records, Greek records. And Jesus says quite plainly, make sure you see it, verse 6, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end, 
the telos, the end goal, everything that we've been longing and waiting for, that hasn't come yet. And that's going to come when we see the climactic moment of the judging of the temple, as Jesus will very clearly allude to in the coming verses, as I mentioned in verse 15. But when you see, or so when you see the abomination of the desolation, and we'll get to that in weeks to come, but for now, you need to realize all Jesus is telling them is there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff going on. In the next 40 years, famines, earthquakes, wars, but I just need you to know, none of those things are the signs. And how interesting is it? Go back to that article in the USA Today. Is it not utterly fascinating that Christians today are using the very things that Jesus said are not the signs as signs that Jesus is coming, not just in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, but that he's coming for his second coming. Like, can you talk about misreading a text? You've missed it big time. Friends, if this is your position today, I'm not trying to say these things because I want to create fights between us. I just want to make it plain. Read verse 6 again. These are not the signs. Yet, read USA Today and say, these are the signs. I don't want to disagree with Jesus. And so I would suggest us to really contemplate that what Jesus is saying here is, there's just going to be a lot of stuff going down. And I need you to not freak out. The word there, alarmed, is to be frightened, to be scared, to not worry and panic. One translation I read said panic. Don't panic. So how do we apply this to us? Jesus is telling us, what? Us. What is he telling us? Well, in some ways, he's not talking to us. This is one of those things where scholar John Walton, who teaches at Wheaton, when he's talking about the Old Testament, says, look, these passages were not written to you. Jesus's answer is not to you. It's for you. Understanding the difference is crucial for your application of the text. When you think that this word should be directly applied to you today, then you write USA Today articles. When you realize they are for you, then you can learn what Jesus is saying to his disciples who just asked him a question and he's answering the question. And he's talking about what's going to happen in the next 40 years. That's already happened. And it came true. So sure, trust Jesus. He is a prophet and he knew what he was saying and talking about and it came true. That's one application. That's for you. Jesus is a prophet. Trust him. But more so, the themes of what Jesus is telling these disciples, they're certainly true about us as we live in this age today. We're not going to be able to unpack all of this today, but over the course of this series, I will continually tell you that what we're learning about Jesus' response is not limited just to the temple destruction. In fact, we will see throughout human history that prophetic literature like this apocalyptic prophetic literature, that's the genre that we're reading from in Jesus, is a continual repeating cycle of events and things that happen. So there's a lot of lessons, principles to learn and take away from texts like this and not be specific prophecies of, oh, in the future, 2,000 years from now, this and this and this and this is going to happen. And then that's what Jesus is talking about. Rather, he's talking about his day right then. And as we learn about the way his disciples are responding in that day, that creates for us the opportunity for this text to be not to us, but for us. So, for example, are you given over to fear? 
Do you realize that fear sells every night in the news, every morning when you wake up on your social media feed? Do you realize that Christians in particular are especially fascinated and driven by fear? In 1970, one of the best-selling books in Christian literature was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. And then since then, one of the best-selling books in the last century that sold over 35 million copies and translated into 54 languages was the multi-volume series by Tim LaHaye, Left Behind, started published in 1995. Concepts uh, to produce fear in people. Jesus is specifically trying to get his disciples, listen, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to worry. Even in the face of crazy stuff going around. So let's fast forward. Here we are today, August 2020, coronavirus, racial unrest, issues in your family, issues in your own heart. What's the economy going to do? You guys feeling really optimistic about our election process right now? How the next few months going to go? What's the social media conversation going to be like? On and on we could go. Are there reasons that it would be very easy for you to have fear, worry? And in the same way, I think there's much that you can learn. Take that specific command from this passage that's given to his disciples and apply that to our lives. Friends, we do not need to fear. Take heart, Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 16. In the world, there is much trouble, but I have overcome the world. We need to look to the gospel. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus isn't just a prophet making predictions about things in the next 40 years or even the next 2,000 years or whatever. We need to realize that Jesus, in fact, is the coming king. And the way that he becomes that king is not with a sword, but with a cross. By dying, with a crown of thorns, with blood dripping down his face, with nails pierced into his hands and his feet. This is what his kingdom is like, and he already won and secured victory. This isn't something we got to question or wonder or guess or, or maybe wishfully hope for. Our king reigns and rules. The gospel of the kingdom of God has already now been established, and Christ sits on his throne in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the social unrest and racial tension and economic curiosities of what America will be. Christians in Jesus' day and our day should be marked by faithful endurance, not panic, fear, or worry. Friends, how can we as a church, how can we help one another not feed and fan the flame of the the worry, fear-mongering culture that we live in? This is vital, I think, for the living through the days that we're in right now. Jesus needs us to persevere in the face of several external challenges, just like those disciples in his day. And so we shall see that in the same way that the 70 AD temple destruction brought about all kinds of birth pains, and then eventually it came. The baby was birthed and the new age was dawned and that temple was destroyed. And then the living temple of the church became the only temple that's on the earth. Jesus wants us to see that there is going to be a repeated cycle 
throughout human history of these themes and concepts. So friends, for us, we, we need to hold on. We need to hold fast. We need to realize that our Christian discipleship is to be faithful and not be alarmed. We need to live through troubled times and endure to the end. We too may see destruction of cherished and beautiful symbols. We may even see our own country fall apart all around us, our own families, communities. There's going to be crazy stuff. But Jesus tells us to hold on to him, to trust in him, to believe his words and realize that the one who was the innocent sufferer was vindicated to the right hand of the father after he died and then rose again and is seated at the right hand of God. Similarly, this image of a woman in labor, what a helpful image. In the same way that there will be labor pains and contractions. And I know, ladies, I've never experienced this. I've never felt it, and I've not actually observed it much. We've got five kids, but they were all planned C-sections for the most part. And so we didn't have all these intense through-the-night labors. So maybe through your little chatting times, if you want to apply the sermon and say, hey, let's share labor pain stories and and further understand what Jesus is saying here. That would be one helpful way to teach your fellow brother or uh, ignorant male counterpart around sitting next to you. It's a beautiful image though. There's pain, there's struggle. Imagine there's not modern medicine. Imagine that you're in the first century and you don't even know if this birth is gonna lead to your death. Not just the life of this child, but so many people died in childbirth. This This is a very tenuous, difficult season for a woman and a family. And Jesus is saying in the similar way that there are going to be seasons of pain and struggle and, and unknown and, and worry about what's going to happen, there will eventually be a new birth. And that new birth will lead to joy. And apparently scientists and whatnot say, and, and a, a jolt of medicine that makes you forget everything that you just went through, through your body, that gives you some sort of short-term memory loss. So you just see the gift of this child in front of you. Friends, this is what we need to be thinking about in terms of how the gospel produces new birth and new life. And this theme is repeated throughout scripture. In Romans 8, we're going to close out our service with that reading. And it says that the whole creation is like a woman in labor and there's pains and there's struggles, but one day the new creation will finally come. And in a very similar way, we're living in those days now. We're living in the days, as Romans 8 says, of there's pain and struggle, but that cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed when Christ does in fact return. When he establishes his, not just earthly, his his, his heavenly kingdom where he sits on the throne next to the Father, but when he comes back and makes all things new on the earth. So let's put our hope in Christ, persevere, and realize that these signs, these crazy times we're living in, there's just going to be a lot of them. Talk to your grandparents and great-grandparents. They probably thought, man, it's crazy times. It's going to be the end of the world. I've read history stuff that right around the First World War, a bunch of people were really optimistic that Jesus was going to return um, because they thought, man, the world is crazy. Well, it didn't, it didn't come. World War I happened. Oh, same thing, World War II Every time the world is going through something big, global kind of crisis, there's a bunch of people who say, oh, it's going to be the end of the world. And sure enough, we're living in that time right now. And I'm going to encourage you, stay faithful to Christ, hold fast, believe the gospel, know that in many ways, all these things are probably more just like birth pains. 
And then one day they will lead to a fruitful birth. And that birth will be the renewal of all things. In the same way that Jesus predicted of a birth of these, the, the present evil age ending and the new birth of, of the resurrection of, of new life in the spirit. In the same way that that did happen, so too will this day come for us. So let's close in prayer and put our trust in Christ in this way. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for giving us hope today. And we want to pray that we would have that hope. That regardless of our interpretations of scripture and whether we agree to disagree on how Matthew 24 is being read, I want to pray God, that we would see in the, in the grand story of Scripture, the, the grand story of the gospel, that there is reason today for hope, even when there are many reasons to not have hope. And in all the pain and sorrow and struggle that can be right in front of our face, God, I pray that you'd give us the gift to be able to step back and see the grand s- story, the grand direction of where everything is going. And we want to thank you for the already reality of the Holy Spirit, the already established kingdom that is on the earth now through the church. I pray that today as we, as we stand and sing and we hear people sing your praises about the living hope that's in Jesus Christ in the gospel. God, I want to pray that we would realize it's here. It's here now. Already now. Look around. There's churches. There's embassy church as one example of many. Lord, we thank you for this church and the witness of these believers that there is a reason that we can get up every morning. There's a reason to press on. And it's not because of the election. And it's not because of who's in charge of our government. It's not because of how well racial tension conversations are going. It's because of your plan to redeem and restore everything. And we're so thankful, God. We need that hope now. Give it to us through your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.